Jess, I had no idea where I was. It's dark outside. I'm laying on the floor of this office and for about 30 seconds, I have no idea who, where I am, who I am. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me, there's a pool of blood next to me on the carpet and everybody is still waiting in the room for me to come back. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, I go to the bathroom, I, you know, clean it up as best I can. There's a huge egg on my head, you know? And I walk it back into the room and I said, well, let's start talking about this bankruptcy thing, you know? And, and my CFO looks at me and he goes, no, Walter. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Walt Rakovich. Walt, thanks for making time for this. Great to be here, Jess. So you know that I'm really excited to have you on the show because I wrote you a big gushy email over the weekend after I finished reading your book. But, <laughs> but for everybody who maybe isn't familiar with the background or, or doesn't know about the enormous real estate investment trust you were the CEO of, can you give people a little bit of background on yourself and on Prologis? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So going way back when, I was, uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and I hope your audience doesn't hold this against me, but I am a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, despite the fact that I live in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> And um, I, I grew up, I was, you know, I was really fortunate. I like to tell people I hit the parent lottery, Jess. I had just amazing, two amazing parents, fabulous. You know, we didn't have a lot of wealth, you know, in terms of financial wealth, but boy, I just received a tremendous amount of wealth in terms of support and love. And, and actually looking back on it, that's probably the most important thing um, anybody could ever ask for. And my parents weren't pretentious at all. They, you know, they appreciated people for not what they accomplished, but who they were. And, uh, and the way that they treated people. My dad was just absolutely awesome in terms of the love that he had for other people. And so, I, you know, looking back on that, it really did have a lot of influence in my life. You don't notice it at the time, but it's something you look back and you say, yeah, my, my parents did really affect me in that regard. I Real quickly, I, I went to Penn State University. I was an accounting major. I, I wore the green eye shade for a little while, for four years. I worked for Price Waterhouse out of college, and I never really saw myself being an accountant, but it was, it was a great background for me. And then I was really fortunate enough to get into Harvard Business School. And I, I tell you, I remember the first day in class looking around, I said, you know, I think I'm the dumbest person in this room, potentially. <laughs> I am not at the top of the heap. <laughs> and by the way, how did I get in here? You know, that type of thing. But you know, I mean, sometimes you know, you, you, it forces you to persevere when you have to look up at people as opposed to looking down at people and, and you know, saying, hey, I've, I've, I got I to figure out how to play the game with a much smarter crowd. And so it was really good for me in terms of raising the bar in terms of my expectations as of what I could accomplish in my life, in my career. But, but actually, my leadership was really molded by the first position that I took out of business school. And, and it was, oh, gosh, it would have been around 1985. I took a job with a company called Trammell Crow Company, which is a real estate development firm. And I had a boss there who was absolutely awesome. I mean, he, he loved people also for who they were. He wasn't brilliant, but man, was he a people guy, you know? And I think the coolest thing looking back on it was that he was one of these guys that just tried to make you better. I mean, he, he came to work. I mean, he wanted to succeed, but actually he, he wanted you to succeed. And with you succeeding, he would succeed, you know? And that's, that was really powerful to me. And 
looking back on my career, that was, that was critically important to me. And he, he had an amazing influence on my life. So then fast forward, took the job with Prologis. I had been with the company for about 15 years when I had my, my real crucible moment there. I, I, I started out as in a regional role, operating role, building buildings and hiring people and building cities. And Prologis, just to, just to give you the background, Prologis is, I believe, one of the largest, I think maybe one of the largest three real estate companies today in the world. All they do is warehouses. It's bizarre. People don't even know who they are because they're not a consumer products name. But I think today they own close to $120 billion in warehouses throughout the world. And also the other thing people don't understand is that everything you, you, know, you have on, everything in front of you, everything you touch and feel probably went through a warehouse someplace in this world. And actually there's a high probability it went through a Prologis warehouse because they own so many of them. And they lease them to, to, to corporate America, to corporations all throughout the, throughout the world. And so I, I joined them. I became chief financial officer. I became um, president and chief operating officer. And that really became my crucible moment at that point. This is 2007 and 2008. And I'll be somewhat brief, but I think it's important that your listeners understand what happened to me because it truly impacted the way that I, I wanted to lead. And I, I had worked for a CEO that was one of the smartest guys I had ever met, truly one of the smartest guys, but he was very narcissistic and he sort of believed that he was right and didn't really listen to a lot of other people. And unfortunately, in some regards, tr twisted the truth around the people who reported to him. And it was really a tough place to be. And so I went to the board of directors after 15 years of being with the company, helping to build it. And I said, look, I, as the number two person in the company, I, I just can't work here anymore. I mean, this is just not who I am. And um, I really think that, that the leader of this company is, is leading us into the, into, into the ground and I don't want to be a part of it. And that was January, 2008. Our stock price was at 75 ish dollars a share. And I left it at, at, at the, the, the pinnacle of, of the stock price. And over a 10 month period of time, I watched it on, from the sidelines go down to $2 and 20 cents a share. And by November of 2008, so we were down 96 and percent. We were the third worst performing stock in the S and P 500 that year. And I went back to, the board of directors called me up one day and they said, you're right. Um, we need to, part ways with the CEO and we need you to come back and, and lead the company. And it was, at first I said no. And then the, and the lead director said, no, no, you need to reconsider. We need, we need to get you back. And after a, a night of talking with my wife and realizing that these were all people that I, a lot of them, people I hired and uh, I just couldn't see, you know, let it go, but I was scared to death. Jess, I was scared to death. And I told him yes. And I went back in November, 2008, when the company was on the verge of bankruptcy to turn it around. And it was, it was really an experience that I would never wish on people on one hand and that yet an experience I learned the most from in terms of my leadership journey. And, and can you talk about from that low? So what, what would your market cap have gone down to it at, you know, two, $3 a share? Yeah. So at the time, you know, Prologis was, we weren't as big a company back then. We were still pretty big. We had a market cap. I think we had fallen from about 22 billion down to less than 500 million. Um, and then, and then at the point, you know, after you did this, like, you know, highly respected merger and everything that you, you built it up to when you, when you decided to step back from that role, what was the market cap up to? You mean when we had merged with A and B four years yep. later? Boy, 
I would have said our market cap rose back up pretty close to about $20 billion. I would say it was, it was, we had, now the stock price wasn't 72 because unfortunately we had to issue a lot of equity and we diluted sure. their shareholders and the like. Right. So, but yeah, we, our market cap was probably 20 some odd billion, $25 billion. And then the market cap of the company we merged with was close to $20 billion. So it created a $50 billion market cap time uh, company at the time, which I think they've probably risen to close to 70, 80, maybe close to a hundred billion today. I mean, it's absolutely amazing how large this company has gotten. Yeah. It's, in it's incredible when you start using the numbers that big, when so many people have a hard time relating to what that actually means, you know, scope wise, it's yeah. hard to visualize just how, how big that portfolio is. You know, I yeah. think, I think in, for me, reading your new book, and thank you so much for sending me the advanced copy. Everybody, you should be going on audible.com and pre-ordering your audio copy of Transfluence, uh, Walt's new book, or getting the Kindle, Kindle book on, on Amazon. But I, I think the point, and I, I, I mentioned this in the email that I wrote to you of like, you know, our listeners know that I'm a real audiobook nerd, right? And out of like, again, if you count the Jason Bourne books, probably, you know, 1100 plus books I've, I've read, listened to, and many of them multiple, multiple times. The reason yours jumped way to the very top of my list is I, I was expecting a well-written book from an accomplished person that would, that would have some good, like some good reminders about being a good leader. And your, like your message of helpfulness, at least to me, minus the, like the positioning of like your self-image and trying to make yourself look like the genius who had all the answers and stuff, it broke through to me in a way that 99% of books don't. And, and I appreciate you for writing it that way. And, and I think the point that it, you really tipped me over the top was when you talked about hitting your head on the desk, like two days after becoming the CEO. Yeah. And I, I just had such a gut check from, from struggles that we went through when I was a CEO post 2008. And like, it was just so, so, so real that I, I was just hook, line and sinker for everything beyond that. Well, I appreciate it. Would you like me to tell that? Quick yeah, story? yeah. Okay. So I think one of the things that, let me just lead into this. I, I think one of the things that, you, you know, you read in the book, I think the, the leaders struggle with two things, uh, a number of things, but two main things, and that is pride and fear. I think, you know, and if, 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 you, if you look at fear, what they really struggle with is things like, am I confident enough for the job? Do I have all the right answers? What do people think of me? You know, and I'm not willing to get vulnerable. I, I've, I've got this straitjacket within which I operate and I can't let anybody in um, because they might see the real me. And, I, and I'm really serious about this. I'm, I'm laying it on the line. I mean, I, I can tell you that I didn't have the answers. And, 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 this is, and this is the story you're talking about. So I had been there. Actually, it wasn't a, cu a couple of days. It was about a month, a month or okay, two. Okay. So, so to put things into context, I had come there November of 2000, early November 2008, I had come back. And this was probably close to Christmas. Okay. So it's maybe a month and a half later, maybe a month. It's, it's in that neighborhood. And we're all sitting around and it's, and by the way, we are working dog years, dog years uh, to try to save this company. And so this was doggone near close to one o'clock in the morning. And um, we're all sitting around the finance meeting. And one of my finance people said, hey, well, I got some really bad news for you. And I said, what's that? He said, well, you know, we're probably going to blow uh, the covenants on one of our bonds, bond issues, and they're all cross-collateralized. Cross so that means that we think we're going to blow covenants on at least $6 billion in bonds. And, and I was like, okay, when, when's that going to happen? 
he said, well, it's December, so it's probably, you know, first quarter next year. We'll do the test at the end of the first quarter and we'll, we'll blow the bonds. And I said, well, so what does that mean? And he looks at me and he said, well, I don't see any way around how we're going to, you know, we're going to have to declare bankruptcy. Now, I had been with this company for 15 years prior to this. And, you know, I'm just going, oh, geez, I came back only to spend the next three years of my life working out of bankruptcy, you know? So my face turns white as a ghost. I said, you know, do you guys mind if I just leave the room for a little bit? Because I, I tell you what, I'm a little bit struck by that comment. And I said, no, that's fine, Walt. So I walked down the hallway and kind of turned the corner and there's one of my colleagues' offices and I see a desk in the distance and a chair next to it. And the first thing I think is, oh man, I got to get to that chair because I'm starting to fall. My, my, my legs felt like butter. And unfortunately, I get no more than a couple feet from the chair and I don't get there and I faint and boom, I hit the corner of my head on the corner of the desk and it splits my head open. And I'm laying there for what turned out to be about 10 minutes, seemed like eternity. And I finally get up and Jess, I had no idea where I was. It's dark outside. I'm laying on the floor of this office and for about 30 seconds, I have no idea who, where I am, who I am. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me, there's a pool of blood next to me on the carpet and everybody is still waiting in the room for me to come back. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, I go to the bathroom. I, you know, clean it up as best I can. There's a huge egg on my head, you know, and I walk it back into the room and I said, well, let's start talking about this bankruptcy thing, you know, and, and my CFO looks at me and he goes, no, Walt, we need to talk about that lump on your head first. <laughs> How did that happen? And it was like, you know, busted, completely busted. But the thing that I realized that day was that there's power and vulnerability because I looked at, I looked at everybody in the room and I said, you know what, guys, I have no idea what to do right now. None. I mean, I just, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I was hired to be the CEO of this company, brought back to be the CEO of this company. And you look to me to have all the answers. And I'm just, I got a complex, man. I don't know what those answers are. And it was amazing. Somebody just pipes up and they said, you know what, Walt? We got your back, man. We're going to take care of this. We are going to figure this out. And here's the thing that I think most leaders miss. Most leaders actually think that they're supposed to have all the answers. And they're, they're afraid to be vulnerable. They're afraid to not have them. They, they have fear. They have fear that other people will recognize that or something. But there is real power and vulnerability. And I'm not trying to say that you should be vulnerable at all times, because if you are, you probably aren't going to be chosen to lead. But there is power in that. And the bigger power is the fact that you as the leader probably don't know as much of the pe as the people that you're leading about the, de certainly about the details. Yes, you have the bigger picture. Yes, as the CEO, you understand perhaps the way investors are thinking about it. But the fact of the matter is you don't have the answers and you don't understand the details like the people that work for you. And when you recognize that and you open yourself up to that and you begin to listen as opposed to tell and become vulnerable, the interesting thing is everybody else around you becomes the same way. And, the, and, and you begin to communicate in a way that you've never communicated before. And so, yes, I'm a big believer in that. I talk a lot about the power of vulnerability in my book. And I think I wish more leaders were that way. I really do. When you think about that, what are the things that you can tell yourself or that the rest of us could tell ourselves to be more vulnerable like you? When we, you know, we're concerned about our reputations or all the insecurities that are keeping us from that. 
any tips or tricks to help like yeah. condition ourselves? You, yeah, there's probably a number of them, but I'll tell you one that really mattered to me and I'll tell you another story around it. So when one of the things I noticed was that we, we had a fairly dysfunctional management team, particularly the first three or four months. Look, every, you know, number one, everybody's working dog years, as I mentioned, but you know, number two, everybody's on pins and needles, you know, it was hard, you know? And so I hired a coach. I hired a coach to come in and coach the entire management team, not one person, but everybody on the management team. And truth be told, I wish I would have coached much lower in the ranks or throughout the ranks, I should say, of the company, because you can learn a lot. So anyway, the coach does, you know, these massive, you know, 360 degree evaluations and personality tests. And, you know, you can imagine, I mean, it was excruciatingly painful at first. And uh, but then he comes back and he said, you know, he met, met with each, each one of us individually. And so my meeting came and oh, I think I'm doing a pretty good job of, you know, managing people. I've always been, you know, I've always tried to pride myself in being a people person. But so anyway, he, he sits down and he said, well, Walt, I got some good news and I got some bad news for you. I said, okay, so give me the good news first. And he said, well, he said, people love working for you. I said, well, that's good. I think that's a, that's a real, he said, but don't take that as affirmation. And he said, because you do have an issue. And that is that your empathy scores are actually not as high as they should be. I said, what? Kid me? That was like putting a dagger in my, my, you know, heart. I said, what do you mean my empathy scores aren't that high? He said, well, he said, to be candid with you, you have a couple direct reports that have said, hey, they like working for you, but they don't know how to approach you because you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off in this company. And he said, you know, what is it that you fear? And I go, what do you mean? What, what, is, what is it do I fear? And so he started digging into my fears. And I said, well, you know what? I, I fear not succeeding. I fear, you know, I've been put in this position and I want to succeed. He said, yeah, and you're acting like it. He said, what you need to do is act a little bit more like you care about your people. I said, well, I do care about my people. And he said, no. He said, I know that, but you need to be giving them time, you know, making yourself much more available. Well, I'll tell you, Jess, that, that I, I mean, it, it honestly, it crushed me for a while, several weeks at least, okay? And then I realized, here's the problem that most leaders have. They don't surround themselves with people that are willing to tell them that, you know? So I'm a big believer in coaching. I'm a big believer in personal board of directors. I'm a big believer in accountability groups however you want to cobble them together, get some people who are willing to tell you, you know, call you to the mat on some things. And actually they're willing to dig in a little bit as a coach would. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that that, that, that can be expensive. And I know every company doesn't provide that for everybody. It's a luxury. It truly is. But the more I think about it as a leader, had I been still been CEO, I would have absolutely had coaching much deeper in the organization. I sit in the board of directors of a company today that provides coaching in you know several layers of management throughout the organization. And they just, they look at it as a, it's the best expense that they can make towards making their employees better. And, you know, the book Transfluence is, is uh, the, the, the word Transfluence stands for transformational influence. I, I truly believe that the most important thing a leader can do is to have a transformative influence in the lives of those that surround them. All of us are so focused on the goal. My goal, my destination was turn around the company, okay? The fact that, you know what's more important is the journey. The journey's more important than the destination. And along the journey, it's all about influencing people to be better at what they do. And by the way, if you do that, if you invest in their lives, 
you will reach your destination. <laughs> You'll get there. May not be exactly the way you want to get there. I don't know, but people will get get you there. You know, and and that became really really obvious to me. So this is a long-winded way of answering your question, which is what can we do? Well, the I think what we can do to sum it up is just that we can invest more time and effort in understanding ourselves a little bit better and asking the question, what can we do better? And having somebody from the outside that's subjective talk to us and tell us what we can do better. I love that. You know, I think it's interesting as I, I've already started going through the book for the second time and thinking about some of the lists and some of the ways that you've kind of scalpeled out things that sometimes just get a broad brush. And it's interesting to me the way that you've identified how many of the concerns of leaders actually just pull back to either fear fear or lack of humility or th- this kind of insecurities that end up being about them. It's it ends up not being about the company's success. It's about how the company's success reflects on them or the you know and just like it was really compelling to me recognizing all these other things actually root back to the ways I'm probably worried about myself. Yeah, so you're, okay, you'll remember this in the book, but this was really powerful to me. And, and I, I saw this article, it was about five years ago. Right when I was writing the book, I was starting to write the book and um, Harvard Business Review um, did this article. I can't remember the name of the author, but anyway, it was called, What, what Are CEOs Afraid Of? And just for your listeners, let's be careful with using the word CEOs because we're all leaders. I mean, we're <laughs> leaders in our family life. We're leaders, you know, we might be leaders in different areas of the organizations, but we all lead. But, but, but the funny thing is, I also believe that what this article identified is what CEOs are afraid of or what leaders are afraid of, period. And so anyway, I'm reading this article. They interviewed 116 C-suite executives throughout the world. Interestingly enough, most of them were in Europe, but still a lot in the United States and Asia. They said, what is your biggest fear? What's your biggest fear? Now, when I was reading this article, I thought, okay, you know, somebody's going to talk about, oh, the competition, or they're going to say our people, or they're going to say, you know, our financial position, whatever, right? Something corporate. No, the number one fear is incompetence. I was like, what? And, and they, they, you know, CEOs talked about the fear of being wrong. By the way, I had the same fear. And I was like, now that's starting, now I'll start reading on a little bit more. But, you know, not having the right answers. And CEOs talked about how it sometimes led to dictatorial leadership because they're so afraid that they got the wrong answer that they're, they get, they're just going to simply tell people this is the way, you know, the way it's going to be, right? The number two fear was underachievement, okay? Underachievement, not doing enough. What's the competition doing, right? So we're not doing enough. And, um, and I, or I'm not doing enough as a leader. And then the third one was appearing too vulnerable, right? Fear of not being important. Well, the funny thing is that the more I'm reading these, the more I'm thinking that that is all about the leader themselves. Okay. It's not, it's not about the company. It's not about what, you know, what we, what can we do better? How can we innovate? It's about the leader. Well, that's the worst thing. If you want to, you know, I talk a lot in the book about the importance of building trust. You know, first thing I thought we had to do, you know, when I came back in the company is we had to build trust, rebuild trust in the organization. Well, you don't build trust when you walk around self-absorbed, focused on yourself, focused on your pride, you know, your vanity, your egotism, you know, your arrogance, or focused on your fears, you know, it's about me, this and that. No, that's not how you build trust. You build trust when you look outside yourself, 
when you can deal with those fears, which we all have, or pride, which we all have. But when you look outside of yourself and you begin to focus on other people, you take, you know, you take the emphasis off of yourself. That's how you build trust in an organization. People begin to trust you because you love them. You think about them. You're focused on them. So yeah, I think most problems in organizations, you look at FIFA, I talk about them in the book. You look at Volkswagen, you look at, you know, I mean, that's just corporate arrogance. How did that happen? Well, it either happened through pride or fear. That's really what it boils down to. It's the two biggest challenges that leaders have. I, I couldn't agree more. I think everybody listening should go buy the book and, and dive into the way that you've obviously put the time and effort but especially the self-reflection. I think there's a lot of folks who can, you know, take an our Harvard Business Review article and make some observations about other folks, but very few are willing to have such a hard look in the mirror at themselves and then tell the rest of us about that. And I think that's what uh, puts your book a level above the rest for me. Um, you know, not, not, I appreciate you saying that, and, but, but we all can do that. You know, we can all do it. It's again, you guys just put your pride aside. You have to, re you have to recognize we all have it. It's not like, oh, well, 70% of the people do, but I don't. Well, that's crazy. We all have it. And we, and we're fighting it. We're fighting the battle every day. Like, you know, I, I get up and I think about something new that's come up in my life. And all of a sudden I'll, I'll have a prideful thought or I'll fear this. You know, the, 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 the one other thing I should say about fears, I, I do think that the antidote to fear is faith. And I'm not talking about necessarily spiritual faith, although it is for me, but not, not for everybody. But I think, you know, it really is, pride is, it, they, they both have to do with the future, pride and fear. Um, and, and, and faith does too. But fear says that the, that the future is negative, okay? And faith says, no, no, the future is positive. And it's just how you fill the bucket. You know, like, how do I fill that bucket? And if I fill it with faith, whether it be faith, whether it be spiritual faith, or whether it be faith in your preparation, or whether it be faith in your team, or whatever, but you got to fill that future bucket with something positive, because otherwise, it'll bring you down, you know, or and, and by the way, don't fill it with yourself either. And, and if you can avoid that trap, if you can be aware of it, self-aware of it every day, and uh, don't, don't find yourself moving in that direction, I think you could, and have a, a few people that keep you honest, coaches and the like, I think you can, you can get through it. I love it. Well, everybody, uh, thanks for listening to part one here. Please tune back into part two. We're going to get some more, some more lessons on transformational influence from Walt. Thanks, everyone.